Maya and the Evolution of the Concept of God Delivered in London, 20th of October, 1896 We have seen how the idea of Maya, which forms, as it were, one of the basic doctrines of the Advaita Vedanta, is, in its germ, found even in the Samhitas, and that in reality, all the ideas which are developed in the Upanishads are to be found already in the Samhitas in some form or other. Most of you are by this time familiar with the idea of Maya, and know that it is sometimes erroneously explained as illusion, so that when the universe is said to be Maya, that also has to be explained as being illusion. The translation of the word is neither happy nor correct. Maya is not a theory. It is simply a statement of facts about the universe as it exists. And to understand Maya, we must go back to the Samhitas and begin with the conception in the germ. We have seen how the idea of devas came. At the same time, we know that these devas were at first only powerful beings, nothing more. Most of you are horrified when reading the old scriptures, whether of the Greeks, Hebrews, Persians or others, to find that the ancient gods sometimes did things which to us are very repugnant. But when we read these books, we entirely forget the weird persons of the 19th century, and these gods were beings existing thousands of years ago. We also forget that the people who worshipped these gods found nothing incongruous in their characters, found nothing to frighten them, because they were very much like themselves. I may also remark that that is the one great lesson we have to learn throughout our lives. In judging others, we always judge them by our own ideals. That is not as it should be. Everyone must be judged according to his own ideal, and not by that of anyone else. In our dealings with our fellow beings, we constantly labour under this mistake, and I am of the opinion that the vast majority of our quarrels with one another arise simply from this one cause, that we are always trying to judge others' gods by our own, others' ideals by our ideals, and others' motives by our motives. Under certain circumstances, I might do a certain thing, and when I see another person taking the same course, I think he has also the same motive actuating him, little dreaming that although the effect may be the same, yet many other causes may produce the same thing. He may have performed the action with quite a different motive from that which impelled me to do it. So in judging these ancient religions, we must not take the standpoint to which we incline, but must put ourselves into the position of thought and life of those early times.
The idea of the cruel and ruthless Jehovah in the Old Testament has frightened many. But why? What right have they to assume that the Jehovah of the ancient Jews must represent the conventional idea of the God of the present day? And at the same time, we mustn't forget that there will come men after us who will laugh at our ideas of religion and God in the same way that we laugh at those of the ancients. Yet, through all these various conceptions, runs the golden thread of unity, and it is the purpose of the Vedanta to discover this thread. I am the thread that runs through all these various ideas, each one of which is like a pearl, says the Lord Krishna, and it is the duty of Vedanta to establish this connecting thread, however incongruous or disgusting may seem these ideas when judged according to the conceptions of today. These ideas, in the setting of past times, were harmonious and not more hideous than our present ideas. It is only when we try to take them out of their settings and apply them to our own present circumstances that the hideousness becomes obvious. For the old surroundings are dead and gone, just as the ancient Jew has developed into the keen, modern, sharp Jew, and the ancient Aryan into the intellectual Hindu. Similarly, Jehovah has grown, and Devas have grown. The great mistake is in recognising the evolution of the worshippers, while we do not acknowledge the evolution of the worshipped. He is not credited with the advance that his devotees have made. That is to say, you and I, as representing ideas, have grown. These gods also, as representing ideas, have grown. This may seem somewhat curious to you. That God can grow. He cannot. He is unchangeable. In the same sense, the real man never grows, but man's ideas of God are constantly changing and expanding. We shall see later on how the real man behind each one of these human manifestations is immovable, unchangeable, pure and always perfect. And in the same way, the idea that we form of God is a mere manifestation of our own creation. Behind that is the real God, who never changes, the ever-pure, the immutable. But the manifestation is always changing, revealing the reality behind more and more. When it reveals more of the fact behind, it is called progression. When it hides more of the fact behind, it is called retrogression. Thus, as we grow, so the gods grow. From the ordinary point of view, just as we reveal ourselves as we evolve, so the gods reveal themselves. We shall now be in a position to understand the theory of Maya. 
In all the religions of the world, the one question they propose to discuss is this. Why is there disharmony in the universe? Why is there this evil in the universe? We do not find this question in the very inception of primitive religious ideas, because the world didn't appear incongruous to the primitive man. Circumstances were not inharmonious for him. There was no clash of opinions. To him, there was no antagonism of good and evil. There was merely a feeling in his own heart of something which said yea and something which said nay. The primitive man was a man of impulse. He did what occurred to him and tried to bring out through his muscles whatever thought came into his mind, and he never stopped to judge and seldom tried to check his impulses. So with the gods. They were also creatures of impulse. Indra comes and shatters the forces of the demons. Jehovah is pleased with one person and displeased with another. For what reason no one knows or asks. The habit of inquiry had not then arisen, and whatever he did was regarded as right. There was no idea of good or evil. The Devas did many wicked things in our sense of the word. Again and again, Indra and the other gods committed very wicked deeds, but to the worshippers of Indra, the ideas of wickedness and evil did not occur, so they didn't question them. With the advance of ethical ideas came the fight. There arose a certain sense in man, called in different languages and nations by different names. Call it the voice of God, or the result of past education, or whatever else you like. But the effect was this, that it had a checking power upon the natural impulses of man. There is one impulse in our mind which says do. Behind it rises another voice which says do not. There is one set of ideas in our mind which is always struggling to get outside through the channels of the senses. And behind that, though it may be thin and weak, there is an infinitely small voice which says do not go outside. The two beautiful Sanskrit words for these phenomena are pravriti and nivriti, circling forward and circling inward. It is the circling forward which usually governs our actions. Religion begins with this circling inward. Religion begins with this do not. Spirituality begins with this do not. When the do-not is not there, religion has not begun. And this do-not came, causing men's ideas to grow, despite the fighting gods which they had worshipped. A little love awoke in the hearts of mankind. It was very small indeed, and even now it's not much greater. It was at first confined to a tribe, embracing perhaps members of the same tribe. These gods, 
loved their tribes, and each god was a tribal god, the protector of that tribe. And sometimes the members of a tribe would think of themselves as the descendants of their god, just as the clans in different nations think that they are the common descendants of the man who was the founder of the clan. There were in ancient times, and are even now, some people who claim to be the descendants not only of these tribal gods, but also of the sun and the moon. You read in the ancient Sanskrit books of the great heroic emperors of the solar and the lunar dynasties. They were the first worshippers of the sun and the moon, and gradually came to think of themselves as descendants of the god of the sun, of the moon, and so forth. So when these tribal ideas began to grow, there came a little love, some slight idea of duty towards each other, a little social organisation. Then naturally the idea came, how can we live together without bearing and forbearing? How can one man live with another without having some time or other to check his impulses, to restrain himself, to forbear from doing things which his mind would prompt him to do? It is impossible. Thus comes the idea of restraint. The whole social fabric is based upon that idea of restraint, and we know that the man or woman who has not learnt the great lesson of bearing and forbearing leads a most miserable life. Now when these ideas of religion came, a glimpse of something higher more ethical, dawned upon the intellect of man. The old gods were found to be incongruous, these boisterous, fighting, drinking, beef-eating gods of the ancients, whose delight was in the smell of burning flesh and libations of strong liquor. Sometimes Indra drank so much that he fell upon the ground and talked unintelligibly. These gods could no longer be tolerated. The notion had arisen of inquiring into motives, and the gods had to come in for their share of inquiry. Reason for such and such actions was demanded, and the reason was wanting. Therefore man gave up these gods, or rather, they developed higher ideas concerning them. They took a survey, as it were, of all the actions and qualities of the gods and discarded those which they could not harmonise and kept those which they could understand and combined them, labelling them with one name, Deva Deva, the god of gods. The god to be worshipped was no more a simple symbol of power. Something more was required than that. He was an ethical god. He loved mankind and did good to mankind. But the idea of God still remained. They increased his ethical significance and increased also his power. He became the most ethical being in the universe as well as almost almighty. But 
but all this patchwork wouldn't do. As the explanation assumed greater proportions, the difficulty which it sought to solve did the same. If the qualities of the gods increased in arithmetical progression, the difficulty and doubt increased in geometrical progression. The difficulty of Jehovah was very little beside the difficulty of the God of the universe. And this question remains to the present day. Why, under the reign of an almighty and all-loving God of the universe, should diabolical things be allowed to remain? Why so much more misery than happiness, and so much more wickedness than good? We may shut our eyes to all these things, but the fact still remains that this world is a hideous world. At best, it is the hell of Tantalus. Here we are with strong impulses and stronger cravings for sense enjoyments, but cannot satisfy them. There rises a wave which impels us forward in spite of our own will, and as soon as we move one step comes a blow. We are all doomed to live here like Tantalus. Ideals come into our head far beyond the limit of our sense ideals, but when we seek to express them, we cannot do so. On the other hand, we are crushed by the surging mass around us. Yet if I give up all ideality and merely struggle through this world, my existence is that of a brute, and I degenerate and degrade myself. Neither way is happiness. Unhappiness is the fate of those who are content to live in this world, born as they are. A thousand times greater misery is the fate of those who dare to stand forth for truth and for higher things, and who dare to ask for something higher than mere brute existence here. These are facts, for there is no explanation. There cannot be any explanation, for the Vedanta shows the way out. You must bear in mind that I have to tell you facts that will frighten you sometimes, but if you remember what I say, think of it and digest it, it will be yours. It will raise you higher and make you capable of understanding and living in truth. Now it is a statement of fact that this world is a Tantalus's hell, that we do not know anything about this universe, yet, at the same time, we cannot say that we do not know. I cannot say that this chain exists when I think that I do not know it. It may be an entire delusion of my brain. I may be dreaming all the time. I'm dreaming that I'm talking to you and that you're listening to me. No one can prove that it is not a dream. My brain itself may be a dream. And as to that, no one has ever seen his own brain. We all take it for granted. So it is with everything. My own body I take for granted. At the same time, I cannot say I do not know. This standing between knowledge and ignorance 
This mystic twilight, the mingling of truth and falsehood, and where they meet, no one knows. We're walking in the midst of a dream, half sleeping, half waking, passing all our lives in a haze. This is the fate of every one of us. This is the fate of all sense knowledge. This is the fate of all philosophy, of all boasted science, of all boasted human knowledge. This is the universe. What you call matter, or spirit, or mind, or anything else you may like to call them, the fact remains the same. We cannot say that they are. We cannot say that they are not. We cannot say that they are one. We cannot say they are many. This eternal play of light and darkness, indiscriminate, indistinguishable, inseparable, is always there. A fact, yet at the same time not a fact. Awake, and at the same time asleep. This is a statement of facts, and this is what is called Maya. We are born in this Maya, we live in it, we think in it, we dream in it. We are philosophers in it, we are spiritual men in it, nay, we are devils in this Maya, and we are gods in this Maya. Stretch your ideas as far as you can, make them higher and higher, call them infinite, or by any other name you please. Even these ideas are within this Maya. It cannot be otherwise. And the whole of human knowledge is a generalization of this Maya, trying to know it as it appears to be. This is the work of Nama Rupa, name and form. Everything that has form, everything that calls up an idea in your mind, is within Maya. For everything that is bound by the laws of time, space and causation is within Maya. Let us go back a little to those early ideas of God and see what became of them. We perceive at once that the idea of some being who is eternally loving us, eternally unselfish and almighty, ruling the universe, could not satisfy where is the just, merciful God? asked the philosopher. Does he not see millions and millions of his children perish in the form of men and animals? For who can live one moment here without killing others? Can you draw a breath without destroying thousands of lives? You live because millions die. Every moment of your life, every breath that you breathe, is death to thousands. Every movement that you make is death to millions. Every morsel that you eat is death to millions. Why should they die? There is an old sophism that they are very low existences. Supposing they are, which is questionable, for who knows whether the ant is greater than the man, or the man than the ant. Who can prove one way or the other? Apart from that question, even taking it for granted that these are very low beings, why should they die? 
If they are low, they have more reason to live. Why not? They live in the senses. They feel pleasure and pain a thousandfold more than you or I can do. Which of us eats a dinner with the same gusto as a dog or a wolf? None, because our energies are not in the senses. They are in the intellect, in the spirit. But in animals, their whole soul is in the senses, and they become mad and enjoy things which we human beings never dream of, and the pain is commensurate with the pleasure. Pleasure and pain are meted out in equal measure. If the pleasure felt by animals is so much keener than that felt by man, it follows that the animal's sense of pain is as keen, if not keener, than man's. So the fact is, the pain and misery men feel in dying is intensified a thousandfold in animals, and yet we kill them without troubling ourselves about their misery. This is Maya. And if we suppose there is a personal God like a human being who made everything, these so-called explanations and theories which try to prove that out of evil comes good are not sufficient. Let twenty thousand good things come, but why should they come from evil? On that principle, I might cut the throats of others because I want the full pleasure of my five senses. That is no reason. Why should good come through evil? The question remains to be answered, and it cannot be answered. The philosophy of India was compelled to admit this. The Vedanta was, and is, the boldest system of religion. It stopped nowhere, and it had one advantage. There was no body of priests who sought to suppress every man who tried to tell the truth. There was always absolute religious freedom. In India, the bondage of superstition is a social one. Here in the West, society is very free. Social matters in India are very strict, but religious opinion is free. In England... A man may dress any way he likes, or eat what he likes. No one objects. But if he misses attending church, then Mrs. Grundy is down on him. He has to conform first to what society says on religion, and then he may think the truth. In India, on the other hand, if a man dines with one who does not belong to his own caste, down comes society with all its terrible powers and crushes him then and there. If he wants to dress a little differently from the way in which his ancestor dressed ages ago, he is done for. I have heard of a man who was cast out by society because he went several miles to see the first railway train. Well, we shall presume that was not true. But in religion... We find atheists, materialists and Buddhists, creeds, opinions and speculations of every phase and variety, some of a most startling character, living side by side. Preachers of all sects, 
go about teaching and getting adherence, and at the very gates of the temples of gods, the Brahmins, to their credit be it said, allow even the materialists to stand and give forth their opinions. Buddha died at a ripe old age. I remember a friend of mine, a great American scientist, who was fond of reading his life. He didn't like the death of Buddha because he wasn't crucified. What a false idea. For a man to be great, he must be murdered. Such ideas never prevailed in India. This great Buddha travelled all over India, denouncing her gods and even the god of the universe, and yet he lived to a good old age. For eighty years he lived and had converted half the country. Then there were the Chavakas, who preached horrible things, the most rank, undisguised materialism, such as in the nineteenth century they dare not openly preach. These Chavakas were allowed to preach from temple to temple and city to city. The religion was all nonsense, that it was priestcraft, that the Vedas were the words and writings of fools, rogues and demons, and that there was neither God nor an eternal soul. If there was a soul, why did it not come back after death, drawn by the love of wife and child? Their idea was that if there was a soul, it must still love after death and want good things to eat and nice dress. Yet no one hurt these Chabakas. Thus India has always had this magnificent idea of religious freedom. And you must remember that freedom is the first condition of growth. What you do not make free will never grow. The idea that you can make others grow and help their growth, that you can direct and guide them, always retaining for yourself the freedom of the teacher, is nonsense, a dangerous lie which has retarded the growth of millions and millions of human beings in this world. Let men have the light of liberty. That is the only condition of growth. We in India allowed liberty in spiritual matters, and we have a tremendous spiritual power in religious thought even today. You grant the same liberty in social matters, and so you have a splendid social organisation. We have not given any freedom to the expansion of social matters, and ours is a cramped society. You have never given any freedom in religious matters, but with fire and sword have enforced your beliefs, and the result is that religion is a stunted, degenerated growth in the European mind. In India, we have to take off the shackles from society. In Europe, the chains must be taken from the feet of spiritual progress. Then will come a wonderful growth and development of man. If we discover that there is one unity running through all these developments, spiritual, moral and social, we shall find that religion, in the fullest sense of the word, must come into society 
and into our everyday life. In the light of Vedanta, you will understand that all sciences are but manifestations of religion, and so is everything that exists in this world. We see then that through freedom the sciences were built, and in them we have two sets of opinions, the one the materialistic and denouncing, and the other the positive and constructive. It is a most curious fact that in every society you will find them. Supposing there's an evil in society, you will find immediately one group rise up and denounce it in vindictive fashion, which sometimes degenerates into fanaticism. There are fanatics in every society, and women frequently join in these outcries because of their impulsive nature. Every fanatic who gets up and denounces something can secure a following. It is very easy to break down. A maniac can break anything he likes, but it would be hard for him to build up anything. These fanatics may do some good according to their light, but much more harm, because social institutions are not made in a day, and to change them means removing the cause. Suppose there is an evil. Denouncing it will not remove it, but you must go to work at the root. First find out the cause, then remove it, and the effect will be removed also. Mere outcry will not produce any effect, unless indeed it produces misfortune. There were others who had sympathy in their hearts, and who understood the idea that we must go deep into the cause. These were the great saints. One fact you must remember, that all the great teachers of the world have declared that they came not to destroy, but to fulfil. Many times this has not been understood, and their forbearance has been thought to be an unworthy compromise with existing popular opinions. Even now, you occasionally hear that these prophets and great teachers were rather cowardly and dared not say and do what they thought was right. But that was not so. Fanatics little understand the infinite power of love in the hearts of these great sages who looked upon the inhabitants of this world as their children. They were the real fathers, the real gods, filled with infinite sympathy and patience for everyone. They were ready to bear and forbear. They knew how human society should grow, and patiently, slowly, surely, went on applying their remedies, not by denouncing and frightening people, but by gently and kindly leading them upwards step by step. Such were the writers of the Upanishads. They knew full well how the old ideas of God were not reconcilable with the advanced ethical ideas of the time. They knew full well that what the atheists were preaching contained a good deal of truth. Nay, great nuggets of truth, but at the same time they understood that those who wished to sever the thread that bound the beads, who wanted to build a new society in the air, 
would entirely fail. We never build anew. We simply change places. We cannot have anything new. We only change the position of things. The seed grows into the tree, patiently and gently. We must direct our energies towards the truth and fulfil the truth that exists, not try to make new truths. Thus, instead of denouncing these old ideas of God as unfit for modern times, the ancient sages began to seek out the reality that was in them. The result was the Vedanta philosophy. And out of the old deities, out of the monotheistic God, the ruler of the universe, they found yet higher and higher ideas in what is called the impersonal absolute. They found oneness throughout the universe. He who sees in this world of manifoldness that one running through all, in this world of death, he who finds that one infinite life, and in this world of insentience and ignorance, he who finds that one light and knowledge, unto him belongs eternal peace, unto none else, unto none else.